stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I am joined by hosts Patrick Green and Dan Ferlito. And today we have a special guest on our show who's been on our show before, Paul Salmon, film historian, author of Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Oh, thank you for asking, as always. Absolutely. And today we are, our episode is really covering the life and the passing of Rudger Hauer. As everyone knows him as Roy Batty, it was a very uh, sudden thing for all of us. It happened the weekend of July 19th, um, I believe on a Friday, but his death wasn't announced until a couple of days later. And it really resounded in fandom. And I don't just want to say fandom. I mean, also with everyone. And we felt like it was appropriate to dedicate an episode to Rutgers' life, but also to the life of Roy Batty who continues to be indelible in not just Blade Runner fandom, but, but sci-fi fandom. He is a very iconic figure in science fiction films. So who better to talk about that than Paul Salmon? So thanks again. Well, uh, thank you. Um, obviously, there are people who are more uh, qualified to talk about Rutgers' life and personal and professional. It's odd how these things happen because intersections of coincidences seem to multiply if you're sensitive to them. And here, Rutgers' passing seemed to strike, at least in the Western world, and by that I mean America and Europe, uh, a real court. You know, there seemed to be this outpouring of affection and uh, more of a sort of an observance of his past work than you would normally find in the day-to-day cyber world or online or in the, you know, what remains of the print world it it just seemed like all of a sudden it hit a lot of people in an emotional spot that i did not expect because rooker as we all know uh although quite talented and and (laughs) very fascinating and uh multi-faceted um his career was uneven and it started very strongly uh actually no to be to be to be fair, um, it started in, in the most obscure way possible as part of this regional Dutch touring company where they taught, not taught, where he was a part of this uh, maybe 20, 25 uh, member acting troupe who went to the sticks 
what we would call it in America, the rural areas, and uh, brought Shakespeare and Moliere and all the classics, but also uh, what was then the cutting and Acheron edge of, oh, people like Beckett and Sartre and so forth, uh, theatrical works to the types of people that normally wouldn't have access to that. And he often told me that that was one of the happiest portions of his life and remains so. And uh, so he went from that to becoming the first Dutch television superstar to becoming one of the first, uh, certainly not the first, but one of the first um, Northern European male leads. I mean, I think we all have to agree that Max von Sydow from Sweden was the one to really crack that bubble in the 50s. Um, But, you know, Ricker definitely had quite an arc and an early one. And then I think through a combination of his own disenchantment with the Hollywood system and the fact that he remained, uh, wanderlust was in his blood. And uh, I think the fact that he just enjoyed sometimes perhaps maybe traveling to a location more than what the location's script or project entailed, not that he was anything other than professional, um, but I think that a big part of his subsequent career was determined by the fact that he just liked to travel and he liked to get around and he was curious about things. He loved the South Pacific. And, uh, what was great for me was that I got to know this man, not only, I mean, professionally, I, I guess it started obviously with Blade Runner, uh, you know, in 1981, but we kept up the relationship both professionally and personally. I I just saw him maybe a year ago and uh, when he was in LA for a short period of time. And of course we had done some uh, fill-in interviews for the 2017 edition of my book, Future Noir, uh, which uh, has a very, I think, interesting kind of farewell interview to the world of Blade Runner in the book. Um, But in between all that, we would see each other. Occasionally, we would have a beer when I was still drinking. And uh, we would talk, and I would go down to his boat that he had, and uh, one of the marinas in L.A., and I used to be a commercial uh, diver, uh, used to work off of Catalina. I had my own 40-foot boat, which is I talk about in Future Noir, because record turned the tables on me and decided he was going to interview me right in the middle of one of the interviews. <laughs> and I kept saying, I'm just going to turn the tape off. And he goes, no, 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 no. He says, please, please, I don't want to know more. He already knew. He was just trying to get me on the record about this stuff. So Rick also (laughs) had this uh, very mischievous uh, quality to him. He liked to like to stir things up occasionally. He would do it just for the sake of doing it. He get bored easily. That's what that's the excuse he would use for me. Oh, I get bored and I just want to mix things up. So uh, I, I look, you know, it's been recent. It's just been in the past, not, not very distant future that he's gone away and uh it's triggered a lot of reminiscences and recollections and thoughts and personal and professional stories that you know i'm really glad i have an opportunity to talk to you about and uh, the audience here yeah i mean we we knew we knew that as much as it hit us his passing and it was so sudden we knew that that was going to be a huge deal for you having spent so much time and, and having a personal relationship even being friends with them so thanks again for coming on the show we were really excited to have you and, and ha- get some of your personal insight on uh, on Rucker Hauer's life I'm sort of a left brain combined with a right 
brain type of person, at least I, I think of myself in those terms. And, and yet, even I find it a little difficult to analyze exactly what this reaction was composed of. Obviously, it's emotional, but what was it that was so specifically unique about Rutger that has caused this outswelling of affection? That's a curious question, you know, but it's nice. It's wonderful to see because let's face it, particularly in today's hyper-saturated, hurry-up, hyper-accelerated, fast food, get-in-get-out world, most people's deaths are just a, not even a blip on the radar, you know? I mean, they're, they're like a fly speck and then they're gone. And yet Rooker and the, all of the appreciations and the testimonials kept rolling in and they're still rolling in. And, uh, it's really unique, very interesting. I'm just, I feel, you know, I, I really miss him. And, and let me quickly, and don't edit this out, if you will. Um, we also lost uh, Terry Rawlings, Terrence Rawlings, oh, uh, right. who was the uh, editor for Blade Runner. And I have to tell you, Terry Rawlings was one of us. And by one of us, I mean, not only was he a tremendous fan of Blade Runner, but Terry was, you know, the professional's professional editor. He had worked on so many different major motion pictures in so many countries with so many major directors. And yet, he retained the freshness of a wide-eyed adolescent filmgoer with the hard-won, hard-edged, canny insights of a guy who worked in the industry his entire life and in some very difficult situations, you know. So I just wanted to put a shout out to Terry and his family. And, you know, 2019 is, ironically, since, as we all know, Blade Runner takes place in Los Angeles, November 2019. 2019 has not been a good year for those of us uh, who either knew or really enjoyed from afar the people who were originally involved in the project. I'd actually seen Turkish Delight, Rutgers film, in 1973, because uh, by that time, the so-called golden age of international art cinema had crested and was on the wane, and most people didn't know it, but that wave was breaking. But even though there were films from Italy, obviously, with Fellini and Antonioni, or films from France with Godard and Truffaut, or, you know, the, the great Swedish master Bergman, um, there really had not been a Dutch art film that had broken through. And in 73, I had uh, been out of college for a short period of time, and I was working as a commercial diver. I had my own 40-foot boat, an old Chris Craft wooden thing from uh, the mid-1940s that had actually been used as a training craft uh, to uh, sort of basically train Marines how to offload from barges onto beaches during the Normandy invasion but anyway uh, i and my partner had rebuilt the bow of this boat gone taking it out to catalina and we were living on it while we were diving uh, off of boston whalers and harvesting seaweed underwater <clears throat> by hand and this wasn't hard hat this was just what they call a hookah setup but you can look that all up in any event i happened to have a day off and on one of these days off i flew in from catalina island they had these small seaplanes that would actually pontoon planes that would land had eight seats 
<laughs> you'd get in them, they'd close the door, and you'd watch all the seals around the windows and the door leak water <laughs> with you five or six feet below the water line. And just <laughs> every funny. single time, no, every single time you would you would sit there and you'd just close your eyes. And, you know, I made my living underwater and I'd be scared to death. I'm going to drown in a seaplane. How ironic could that be? But on one of these trips, I flew in and met Philip K. Dick for the first time. And on another trip, I flew in and I saw Turkish Delight, which was Paul Verhoeven's <clears throat> breakthrough feature film that was nominated, as I recall, for the best foreign film for 1973 uh, by the Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences and featured a prototypical and really genre career-defining performance, at least in European art films, for Rutger Hauer. So I was already familiar with Rutger's career. I had seen Soldier of Orange, the 79 film that uh, at that time was the most expensive Dutch movie ever made, and Rutger was the lead of that. I'd seen, um, oh gosh, Spetters, <clears throat> which is about this aimless bunch of dirt bikers, the disaffected kid, and Rutger has kind of a glorified cameo as uh, the guy who had made it good in that particular sport, extreme sport. And then I had seen his film, uh, uh, Nighthawks, uh, with Sylvester Stallone, which I thought was actually quite a, quite a nicely done, gritty neo-noir about a European terrorist called Wolfgar, uh, who was played by Rutger as, as sort of this chameleon-like, and yet at the same time, extremely suave and ruthless uh, European terrorist who had come to New York to cause mayhem. So I was familiar with Rutger. So I get to the set, and to circle back to the beginning of this, and I thought that night I was going to talk to Harrison Ford. Well, as anyone who's familiar with the history of Blade Runner knows, the relations between Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott during uh, the shooting of the film were not always congenial. And um, that night there was... Who knows what was going on? Uh, I do, but I'm not going to say until the lawyers are all dead. Um, but <laughs> but uh, let's just say that there was some unhappiness about. And I'll never forget uh, the publicist on Blade Runner, who never gets mentioned, by the way, and he should. His name was Saul Kahn. And he was in John Landis's first feature film as the lead uh, in a movie called uh, Schlock, a.k.a. The Banana Murders. And um, anyway, um, Saul was a publicist and he goes, oh, oh, I'm so sorry you were supposed to. He saw me and he was so used to me at this point being around that he didn't realize I was kind of working in a different capacity that night. He goes, oh, my God, I, I was supposed to get you with Harry tonight. And I go, yeah. He goes, well, um, how can I put this? And I remember turning off my tape record and saying, just tell me. And at that time, I had earned a certain degree of trust. And since I was working at Universal Pictures at the same time, um, I was not only a someone who was writing a lot of film journalism in a lot of different magazines for a lot of the majors, but I was also someone who was in the industry. So I knew that there were certain lines I crossed at my own peril. And I wanted to continue to be a part of the filmmaking family, which basically meant that I wasn't out to, you know, paint a real negative picture of anyone, uh, unless it was called for. And uh, I said, well, just tell me what's going on. And they said, well, Harrison's not really up for talking tonight. I knew what that was Hollywood code for. And I said, well, who could we speak to? And he looks around, he goes, well, and I said, well, how about Rutger? 
I've always liked Rooker, and Rooker's right over there. And he was literally 15 feet away, and he looked bored out of his mind. He was sitting on a canvas <laughs> chair with his head thrown back, staring up at the sky as it was getting dark, because this was before, uh, this was one of the night shoots. And um, he goes, oh, sure. Oh, yeah, Rooker's always available. Rooker loves to talk to the press. So Rooker was essentially the first uh, Blade Runner performer that I spoke with at length. And I went in and I got some of the material that I have in the, the varying editions of Future Noir, because there are three of them. Uh, they're all different. But um, I got some of that material. But I have to tell you, the more we, I spoke to him, he was my first contact with street-level Dutch society. And by that, I don't mean anything uh, socially uh, objectionable or inferior. I just meant that here was the living, breathing Dutchman who was very straightforward, very candid, and was European in a sophisticated way, and yet very Dutch in this strange mixture of the conservative and the liberal I've always found in the people from the Netherlands. They're very, they're a very unique country. And uh, I have a lot of, believe me, I have a lot of admiration for them. God knows they've accomplished a lot in their history. And not to mention their artistic side uh, with their Rembrandts and their Vermeers and so forth and so on. Um, but Ricker and I just had fun. And uh, I, one of the things he said that first night really struck me. He goes, you know, I'm not quite sure about this. And I go, what? He goes, well, one of the things that Ridley and I spoke about when we first met, and by the way, I like Ridley. This is Rutger talking now. I like Ridley. And I go, why? And he says, well, he likes to kind of put people on, and he's got a good sense of humor, and he's very well educated. And, and you know, he really knows he can talk a lot, but he can talk in a way that doesn't feel like you're being talked down to. And I said, oh, yeah, that's been my impression. So we, we were on the same way with Ridley. But then he started to talk about such things as, um, oh, his love for the sea and the fact that he ran off when he was 15 because he had this romanticized thing about he was going to be a sailor and all this. And he kept trying to get away. And finally, his mother, Rooker's mother, was the one that literally got him on the Dutch merchant marine ship that he went on for a while and had all his romantic notions about living in the ocean disabused because he was throwing dead rats off the side and seasick the entire two or three weeks when he first started. And, um, and I laughed and I said, well, that sounds very similar to my life because I grew up in the Navy and all my earliest memories are of sailors and being on boats and being on seasick voyages and going places from like San Francisco in the 50s and 60s to the Manila in the Philippines, which was a three, three and a half week one way trip across the Pacific Ocean on boats with about 1500 people. 500 of which were sailors who were constantly kept below decks and never let out in the air. You never saw them. And a 1,000 who were all dependents. And I can remember things like seeing the virtual middle of the Pacific Ocean, muddy with water that looked like dark tea, with thousands of tiny little faces staring up at me and then hearing the captain on the intercom saying folks we just there was an underwater volcanic eruption in the night and we're passing over boiled squid Whoa. and that was one of the memories that i have as a child and he talked about when he on his initial trip uh from amsterdam where he was born and where he spent a great deal of his life <clears throat> and uh, worked around and went to school 
Uh, he, he talked about leaving Amsterdam and getting into places like Indonesia and uh, places uh, where the poverty level was so extreme where he would see bodies float by in the water. And that sparked another thing with me because I went, ah, I was raised in the Philippines. And my dad was in a form of law enforcement that was very um, violent and very rough. And that was our day-to-day table talk. And I grew up pretty fast in some ways. And in some ways, I'm still very naive. But And the next thing you knew, it was just back and forth like that. So we had things in common. And then he would say, oh, and I've read Ionesco. And I said, oh, Rhinoceros is one of my favorite plays. I love the absurdity of that. So Rutger could ping pong like that, you know? And so right at the right away, he was like that. And also I could see the effect he was having on the ladies and some of the men. <laughs> and I could see uh, the fact that uh, he was, as I said before, mischievous. And he would like to do or say things occasionally just to do or say them. And then I saw how he and Brian James were interacting. And I went up to them one night and I said, you guys act like you're old friends. And they go, we are old friends. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, Brian was one of the first people I met when I first came to America after I was in New York. And I had this horrible experience with Sylvester Stallone on Nighthawks. And I came out here to get away from New York. And one of the very first people I ran into was Brian James. And we both race motorcycles. We like to drink beer. We like to sail. We have a lot in common. He's one of my buddies. So a lot of that give and take you see in Blade Runner is based on true experience, you know, I mean, real life experience. So anyway, that was my initial encounter with, with Rutger. And over the shooting of Blade Runner, uh, I, I, I remember I found him very funny, uh, because, uh, when he was working, he was quite intense, uh, very focused, very intense, but you could see the mind going, and Ridley as often as not would either be on top of a, a crane or way in the back of a, a huge open air set on top of a platform, uh, trying to, you know, choreograph 400 extras or, he was offset in another room in front of what they now call Video Village, uh, which is what used to drive Harrison Ford crazy because Ridley would not shoot next to the camera. I mean, direct next to the camera. He would set everything up, rehearse, and then go scurry away under a tent and sit there and stare at a monitor. And Harrison wanted him to be there. Interestingly enough, Ridley would often be next to the camera when Rutger was performing. So there was this chemistry that Rooker and Ridley had. So I kept watching all that. And after a while, I got to know him in particular well enough as a performer to know when he was being serious and when he was not. And he was a kind of a master of putting you on with a straight face. And I know I would giggle in the back and I'd have to suppress something you know, or turn or something, because everyone else would be taking him very seriously. And I knew he was just shining everyone there on the set on to see if he could get away with something. <laughs> so that's sort of a generalized observation of what he was like during that film. But he was very professional. And boy, did he come up with ideas. He was an idea machine. He just kept popping them out. Ridley, could we try this? Could we try that? And it was never in the sense of someone, an ego type, uh, an actor's ego speaking to try to expand his role and take, you know, uh, upstage, you know, the lead. Uh, although I'm certain there was a, a, a certain degree of that going on, but 
I think overall, Rutger just had quite an imagination, and he was just coming up with all these bits of business all the time. Like the famous thing about him, you know, grabbing the dove at the end, you know, suddenly has a dove on the rooftop. Uh, that was Rutger's idea. Uh, of course, the famous final lines in, you know, Tears and Rain, his speech, uh, you know, that was his idea. Um, the idea that uh, when he kisses Tyrell, it's a non-sexualized moment, even though everyone takes it as some kind of a homoerotic uh, 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 tenderness and or like a Sicilian, uh, you know, kiss of death. It was neither. You were made as well as we could make you, but not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, and you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. And Rutgers had this thing, as he called him. He never called Batty a person. He always called him a robot or a thing, which I found interesting. Um, that kiss was, kiss was just meant to say that he, he found it all very pleasurable. And, you know, he was only four years old, and he liked pleasure. Dan and I were discussing the kiss earlier today, actually, and um, I had brought up the idea that it was more, it reminded me, having been raised in conservative um, fundamentalist Christianity reminded me of Judas and Jesus in the garden. Obviously Tyrell isn't Jesus, but it's a very like a betrayal. He's kissing him like it's this tender thing, but then he's killing him right yes. afterwards. And, and it, also to me, it has more biblical um, connotations than it does anything sexual or anything else. Oh yes. Well, that's the, uh, the beauty of it, isn't it? Because it's multidimensional. I mean, it's, like so much else of Blade Runner, there it's open to interpretation. Uh, right. You can see it as uh, you know the uh, uh, a nod to the old uh, film noir uh, gangster, you know, kiss of death. You could see it as a son saying goodbye to his father, the kiss of you know goodbye. You can see it as just the autonomic response of some pre-programmed computer chip that in a short four-year period of sensory input has learned to really enjoy physical contact. You can take it for all kinds of different things. But that was something that Rook came up with. That certainly wasn't scripted. In fact, I remember uh, being in the commissary when, uh, I think I even speak about it in uh, the latest edition of Future Noir, Sean Young and uh, Joe Turkel were having lunch, and uh, Joe was really thrown by that whole uh, joe invested a lot emotionally in that sequence as you can tell on screen when tyrell is you know killed by roy uh but uh, i remember <laughs> i remember joe turning to me he says and then rooker kissed me and he stuck his tongue in my mouth <laughs> I remember just laughing because <laughs> it's so obviously taking him completely by shock and he's still trying. And then he kissed me. He wasn't supposed to do that. And he put his tongue in my mouth. What am I supposed to do? You know, and, and Joe, Joe has got this very uh, Bronx kind of accent, you know. <laughs> anyway, so Rutger was always a source of uh, a lot of fire and a lot of spark. And yet at the same time, um, 
very much a soldier in the trenches, you know, guy who was in there and doing the job and not complaining and, you know, uh, just, uh, like, gosh, everyone was suffering on that picture because of the physical conditions, but Rutger spent, you know, a good portion of it with half of his clothes off. And, uh, so, uh, I don't know. It was a very interesting personal and professional introduction to him, especially after seeing him on screen all those years. Yeah. Um, I, I'm glad we brought this up. I thought it was going to come up later, but again, we're, we want to keep, you know, me, you you know me, you can never keep me to a (laughs) linear narrative. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, let him off the chain. Having been, having been really impressed with his book, which I'll go ahead and say now for all the fans, um, all those moments is Rucker Howard's book that he wrote in, uh, 2007, I want to say, and it's widely Mm -hmm. available on Amazon. It's, and it's very affordable. And also all the proceeds go to his starfish foundation, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end, but that's a foundation for HIV AIDS that he was very passionate about. So it's, it's also a good cause, but, um, I wanted to bring Rucker's thought process on that scene in here real quick. So I'll just quote a couple of paragraphs from the book. Batty and his maker have a complex relationship. At the end of the scene, Batty kills Tyrell, and I decided I wanted to throw a curve in here before he does it. I wanted Batty to kiss him goodbye. Not a peck on the cheek, but a real kiss. I mentioned it to Ridley, and he liked it. He said we'd give it a whirl. It lends the scene a strange sort of sexuality that's ironic because there's no point in having that in a robot. What struck me when I got to Los Angeles was that everyone there was so much into their sexuality, whatever that was. You have all kinds of varieties. And I thought, what is that all about? So I decided to play with that. For Batty, his sexuality is all the way around, and even that doesn't matter because he's a machine. He literally doesn't have any use for it. It's just part of the makeup, and he kisses his sister as he kisses his father as he kisses his brother. And if it's on the tongue or on the cheek, it doesn't matter. It's just the way of the program that says love. Yeah, and that, um, well, there I have a number of uh, possibly interesting responses to that. Um, one is that, yes, he said that from the beginning. What struck me, and as I think I alluded to earlier, was that Rucker never really discussed Roy as a being. He always, the word he used was refrigerator. He used to say, oh yeah, this refrigerator named Batty. And I heard that more than once. So he obviously was thinking of him in terms of the classic mechanical man. And uh, in fact, um, uh, to go back to all those moments, um, he also, uh, I think in there, uh, recounts a story where he tells Ridley that he was concerned, how do I play this robot? I don't want to play a robot. I don't want to be like making herky-jerky motions and talking funny and having like silver. And Ridley says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to be like that. You're going to be human. You're better than human. And Rooker being very relieved with that which I then find ironic because when he was on the set, he was always talking about Batty as if he was indeed a computer chip, just something that was a simulcrum, you know, which is a wonderful uh, tie in with Philip K. Dick's original, you know, concerns about artificial humans and what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be a being with true empathy or someone that just fakes it and, you know, uses it for their own ends, which you could say to a certain degree, Batty does um, because Batty is so many different things. He's a four year old child. He's a, he's a, he's an experienced combat 
veteran. He's obviously someone in that military quasi order that he refers to in his final speech who had a position of uh, authority uh, within the military of the future. I mean, so he's all these different things, but he's essentially this made thing. And I think that's what Rutger kind of hung everything else on. Now, you could also say that he did that simply to not take it too seriously, to not let the thing run away with him, you know. But I, I was he was always kind of disparaging about it because he and I would get in these arguments, and they were arguments, uh, which I don't have in any of the books. But when we were alone together, which was <laughs> certainly more than once, um, I would say, well, why are you disparaging? He says, no. He says he's he's essentially a sophisticated robot. And I said, well, he's really, if you want to be completely true about it, he's some he's like the next step past a cyborg. He's an artificial human. He's like a, a clone with its own a clone that's got its own identity that's been blah, 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 blah. and we would get into these endless circular arguments, which really didn't matter because it's his role and it was his character. But I just find it ironic uh, that he he managed to put all these shadings into something that he either would call a refrigerator or a computer chip. And I think, bottom line, that's how he felt about it. Now, one, one other thing about all those moments. He talks about how uh, Rooker uh, mentions when he first came to Hollywood, he noticed that everyone was very deep into their own sexuality. And he, he was very um, sarcastic about that to me in 1981. I said, well, have you been to LA before? Because he came driving up to the gates one day. He had this huge convertible, this really flashy rented car that he had leased from the German actor, uh, or is he Austrian? I can never remember. I think he's Austrian. Maximilian. That's his red Cadillac that he's talking about? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, and I'd say, wow, that's about as American as you can get, Rutger. And he goes, and then he would talk to me what he felt as someone from the uh, the, the Netherlands uh, who uh, was experiencing America at least on this level for the first time, because he had been to America when he was in the Dutch Merchant Marine. Uh, he had been to Chicago of all places. He had been to the Great Lakes on those boats, and you know, anyway, um, he said that. He found it very odd how everyone had these rigidly defined sexual slots. He said there were a lot of them, but everyone was really, he said it's like everyone's holding a neon sign up above their head saying, I am this. And he found that odd. And so he wanted to play Batty as sort of a rainbow of those colors. Am I talking about a rainbow coalition? I don't know. But I'm saying that he was very well aware of the fact that he was, in essence, even though he could contradict himself, he was putting a very broad spectrum of different types of sexual preferences into Batty at the same time. And he was using that role to express, in a way, his kind of amusement at the fact that even for a country that at, especially at that time, we were coming out of the 70s when there was this massive craziness going on, gender-wise and party-wise and everything else-wise. I think he was making his own subtle critique of the America of the early 1980s when things were starting to become more conservative and more codified and more like categorized. And, and Rooker saw Batty as something that was, in a sense, unclassifiable. And I think that's in there, too. Even though it's like, you know, Actors make a lot of decisions, and uh, I, for instance, just Harrison Ford for a moment. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. 
Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. Who, when most people talk to Harry about, you know, Deckard, did they ask him, what was your process? What did you think about Deckard? Who did you think Deckard was? What was his history that wasn't on the page? You never see people ask that. And yet that's the basic function of a performer's art is to give these fictional creations humanity, right? So I think uh, Rooker's process to getting to Roy Batty was very complicated and indeed sometimes very contradictory. But that's, you know, again, that's being human, isn't it? Being contradictory. Which is very interesting about him referencing the character of Roy as a refrigerator or Rachel as a washing machine because his final speech in the film sort of contradicts all of that. Like it's, it wasn't about his speech at the end is really about his humanity and, and what he's seen in the world and um, sort of his presence in the world, leaving the world. So I always found it very strange that he would character one way, but clearly understand him another in the film. So I don't know if there was a, a disconnect between the two, but um, what what I do kind of one interesting thing about Rudger Hauer that I've, I've picked on picked up on as I've sort of read about him and certainly seen his films. He was, you know, certainly when he was younger, he was just like tall, gorgeous, blonde haired, blue eyed man. But he played against that type at all costs at all times, even in Blade Runner, he's still like his hair's bleached blonde. Um, oh, he still he hated sort of, that too. He, yeah, he is who he is, but he's he's played against that stereotype mostly throughout his career. He's never like. I mean, I think maybe the closest he got to to that point was Lady Hawk, where he's sort of this knight in shining armor, literally. But also, he's cursed, and right. we can get into that at another point. But still, so he's still playing against that type. Where yes, he's you know, broad shouldered and gorgeous, but that is it. That's where it stops. There's so much mystery. Most of his characters he's played are so, they're not peripheral. They're not uh, surface level. He's never just played the the screen idol. And he could have, he could have kind of played those roles that oh, Brad Pitt he, played or yeah. anyone, but he didn't. He decided well, to play, he decided to go a different route. Um, Batty's final speech. Uh, yes. Well, in one sense, if you buy into his, uh, uh, Rutger's ongoing categorization of Roy as an appliance, then that final soliloquy is almost, it's, it's incongruous. It's almost like hearing poetry from a cuckoo clock, right? Uh, but on the other hand, if you take the replicants as being uh, more human than human and being... Um, actually put into this four-year lifespan so that they will not continue to mature emotionally and intellectually, then what you might be seeing towards the end of his life is the accumulation of those few years, this intense life, short, yes, as Tyrell says, you know, the candle that burns twice as short burns twice as brightly, Roy. Um, if you look at it that way, then you could be saying that that final rush of empathy and poetic expression is the culmination of everything that's come before. And he's, he's just growing and growing and growing, both spiritually and physically, empathically and socially as a human being. 
And that's who he's modeled on afterwards, after all, correct? So uh, there's, again, there's different ways you can look at that. As far as Rutger's own self-image goes, believe me, he told, and this is, I know, in the uh, interview that is in the last edition of uh, Future Noir, the revised and expanded edition, the long interview that he gives at the back of the book, he had a very, um, for many years, he did not have a good self-image of himself. He said, I was tall. I was gawky, I had acne, I was socially maladroit, I didn't get along, I wasn't good in school, I was always getting in fights, I was always getting in trouble. And so I think he never really squared what the public saw with this blonde, blue-eyed Adonis uh, in the fantasy world of cinema with what Rutger saw in the mirror each day. I think that he was very uh, insecure to a certain degree about his looks. And he, he said that to me right up to the end. You know, he goes, I never did understand that. I mean, he obviously, you know, he was, <laughs> he was comfortable with his fame and uh, his attraction, you know, by, by the time, uh, you know, even Blade Runner had come around because don't forget when he did uh, this TV show that he and Paul Verhoeven first met on Floris in 1969, F-L-O-R-I-S, of which you can find episodes on YouTube that have oh, not, really? unfortunately, yeah, they haven't been dubbed into English or, or subtitled, but they're oh. out there yeah, but the, hey, they're half-hour episodes, and they look as good as anything shot in a studio system at Warner Brothers or in Columbia in 1959. Really beautiful tracking shots. And that was Verhoeven as well, right? That's Verhoeven, and Verhoeven played a 16th-century count, a nobleman who went off to the wars and came back, and his lands had been taken away from him while he was gone, and he comes back to get his lands back, and he's kind of an avenging knight. And he has this bumbling squire sidekick. And it was uh, the real first, uh, you know, first Dutch television hit. And he, he overnight, he and Paul Verhoeven both became superstars in their own country. So, you know, Rutger from the late 50s on was familiar with the trappings of fame. Um, but in fact, did he think himself that he was exceptionally uh you know, well molded or that he had a certain classical beauty. No, quite the contrary. I want to, I want to go back for one second um, to his final speech. Cause we're, although we're kind of jumping to the end of the film, it, it's, it's such an impactful moment that I think it's worth um, spending a little bit of time on. Jamie, you said something that I have to disagree with a little bit, which is that it's sort of an expression of his, um, of his humanity at the end. I think it's, it's interesting. You look at the first version of the script as at least as as he was supposed to be shooting it, you know, the as of the night before the final shot, the final shoot, um, it's it said little people. I've seen things you little people wouldn't believe. And he decided to keep people, he got rid of little, but he's still saying you people, right? He's still very specifically separating himself as something more than or something separate from human. And, you know, when we talked to Hampton Fancher, he talked about how um Batty by this point was basically uh, like an, a Nietzschean um, superhuman, right? So I think that there's something in his in his leaving, in his passing, where he's coming to terms with the unique beauty of his ambivalent existence as something that is both appliance and a superhuman capable of amazing things that regular humans who were not created by humans, you know, uh, mechanically would never be able to. And I guess what I want to just say for a second, because Batty – 
I think it's just is is he's my favorite character in all of um, film. And I think he's just such an indelible part of um, science fiction in general. I think what's amazing about him is that he is a continuing crescendo of ambivalences that compound and aggregate and end up with something that is unrecognizable and unclassifiable. And I guess what I'm saying uh, by saying it in this kind of long-worded way is that he he starts off we, we kind of we see him and we think I know who this is. Right. This is a this is a, a war machine who is beautiful and perfect and a great utility that we have created for exceptional labor purposes off off world. Right. And by the end of the movie, we look at him like he's um, almost uh, almost uh, like a, he's almost nothing and everything at the same time because he's not a villain. He's not a protagonist. He's not an antagonist. And he's not a human he's not a machine he's not straight he's not bad bi he's not gay he's not genderqueer he's not any he's not but he's also not traditionally masculine he's very feminine the way that he moves it's like an agglomeration of contradictions i think and in agglomerating those contradictions what i think howard did was he created a character who is almost impossible to pin down and i think it's a really wonderful metaphor for the film itself because of course as we've seen with all of these subsequent versions of it it's become increasingly ambivalent and it's also agglomerated this sense of contradiction and poetry and um and mystery and i think the reason batty and blade runner are so inextricably linked in culture and i think will always be is because they are the two most poetically mysterious things i've ever seen on celluloid in my entire life um, in one place, and they're married together forever for that. So I, I just wanted to go to his final speech for one second, because, you know, my, my cousin, um, Miles, you know, he he's he and I grew up really loving this film together, and we always used to talk about his final speech as kind of um, altering our worldview in a way as 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 children. It's uh, there are very few characters who had the ability to do that, and I think Batty, and specifically Rutger Hauer's portrayal of Batty which wasn't even the baddie that was on the page, right? Hampton Fancher himself was like, yeah, at a certain point, I just sort of gave into this vision of baddie that was emerging and watched it happen. Um, it's, it's, it's such a gift to to all of us, I think. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Well, um, do you want to respond, Jamie, before I go into one of my five-minute answers? <laughs> sure, well... He's becoming self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! What's, Shut him down. Find it, actually, the, only, the only thing that I really want to add to what Patrick said—I mean, I think it's an interesting take. I think my issue was more of just the dichotomy of the language that he uses, as opposed to the language that we hear. That's sort of where it's coming from. It's like it's just they're very different. Um, but what I do find really interesting, as Patrick, as you were talking, is. You ha- at one point, I think you're absolutely right. Batty sort of represents the movie in and of itself. You can't really, it's everything and it's nothing all at the same time. And like amazing art, it becomes personal and it's a different story for each of us. But what I find the most interesting is that you, has, you have Rick Deckard's character who's taffed by essentially local law enforcement saying there's this person or someone who we're not calling a person living their life. How dare they go kill it? And the setup where these people for all intents and purposes who are not called people have decided, no, 
we are people and we're going to live our lives despite what you think. And we're going to come back and we're going to try and see if we can live longer. And local authority and government authority or whatever is like, oh, how dare you? How dare you? Almost like, how dare you cross the border? You know, how dare you? So one it was just something that came to mind. One interesting thing that just came to me when you were um, speaking, not Jamie, uh, but uh, when it was earlier said that Batty says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Well, it could also mean you people because he's not a person. He's talking about people. He's mm -hmm. talking about humanity. He's not human. And so there's that as well. But I think also, uh, although Rutger rightly deserves a great deal of praise for the addition to the lines and the paring down of this uh, final speech. Let's not forget that filmmaking is a group effort and that you not only had uh, Hampton and David Peoples, uh, you know, constantly rewriting bits and pieces all throughout, um, but you also have the guiding eye of Ridley. And you have Ridley saying, that sounds like a good idea. That doesn't sound like a good idea. We have the time to do that. We don't have the time to do that. Look, we're set up here. This is going to be the last shot, literally, of our, you know, uh, our time out here on the back lot. Uh, you know, when, when, when Batty's head is bowed forward and you see Gaff Spinner out of focus, you know, coming up behind him. I mean, that was literally the last shot of the day because the sun was coming up. And that's what that beautiful blue sky is behind him. So, I mean, you know, Ridley literally grabbed that shot. I mean, uh, Ridley was pulling off technical wizardry even at that time that was just really staggering. Considering the complexity and uh, uh, just the scale of what he was trying to achieve. Uh, so there's all that. But also, um, you know, uh, Rutger's, Rutger's character, as he spoke about in all those moments, and which he also uh, spoke to with Ridley while I was around on more than one occasion, I'd be, I always hung, for the most part, by the camera crew which meant that I was next to Jordan Cronenworth and his son or Katie Haber or Michael Dealey when he was down from the office or Eva Powell or the first ADs or whatever. I usually was around that group. So I, I've always, on every film, whether I was observing it being made or a part of the crew making it or an executive in some way, shape, or form that was on the outside working with the, the filmmakers, I've always gone right to the set. I've always gone right to the camera. That's where it is. And in a sense, it's like the most honored position you can have because what you're in effect seeing is a play in live time where the performers are performing for you. You know, a handful of people. And th those are live performances being caught. I mean, this is so obvious, but to there is such a jump between watching it on a screen and being there and feeling the electricity in the air and seeing the crackle. And when Rooker did those final lines, and we're talking about a crew at this point that not only wanted to murder Ridley Scott, but were about ready to turn on each other in acts of horrifying self-cannibalism. They were so tired, <laughs> so exhausted, and so angry, and so put out, and so just screaming to be let out of this horrible dark cage called Blade Runner, that everyone and I mean everyone, paused. And there was a moment when the full impact of Rooker's performance on those final lines on set really hit everyone. It really came across. So what you're seeing 
is not something that's just manipulated by Van Gelis's score or by Ridley's incredible lighting or camera placement or, you know, blocking. That right there is performance, too. You know, I mean, the poetry and the mix of melancholy and resignation and whimsical humor and kind of just the acceptance that here we go. Um, you know, that's still all these decades later, I think people find it so affecting because it's so real. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. I mean, I was talking a little bit with the guys the other day and then earlier with Jamie about how especially this film sort of turned into this thing that I honestly I've said it before and, and I don't know 100% whether I'm right but that's my feeling even Ridley Scott wasn't 100% sure how the sum of the parts was going to work out like you said it's a, it's a whole team there's you know hundreds of people working on little things here and there and editing and all that and if you go back to Rucker Howard's upbringing and kind of how he started you know in theater and his you know growing up kind of lower class and poor and you know trying to stint in the military and failing because literally once they started to teach him how to kill people he was like why would I ever want to kill someone I don't want to do that and, and he left the military you know he protested and was like I don't want to do this this is not for me which is interesting well he tried to run away and they caught him essentially right. <laughs> then he came back and he said well maybe if I take the psychiatric way out yeah Right. Which is how he described it to me. But no, sure. I mean, uh, that was another point of reference because even I saw at a young age what was really going on in Vietnam. And I thought part of it uh, was very applicable to what Rutger felt in the terms of, I don't want to kill anybody. Right. I mean, you know, why am I, you know, what am I, you know, this isn't about like field maneuvers. This isn't about getting in great physical shape as he talks about in all those moments. This isn't about like doing fancy maneuvers. This is learning how to become a depersonalized killing machine. Right. So uh, I I understood that part of him as well. Right. And but it's it's so it's complex like the rest of his life. You know, you take someone who was classically handsome, this sort of like perfect, you know, Aryan looking tall blonde guy who is like feels lanky and is insecure and then wants to wants to become a ship captain. And in the end, you know, had a hard time with it, but loved a lot of it, but couldn't actually get that test passed because he's colorblind and right. you know, wasn't confident in his physical looks. And you watch any scene with him. I just watched um, the legend of the holy. Uh, oh, that's the I'm glad the holy drinker. The right? only Emmanuel only film, but uh, tragically underrepresented in little scene wonderful and those, four star movie right and those scenes when you see the close-ups of him i'm like this is the most beautiful man i've ever seen not just physically but just like the his mental process and what he's going through i shared a scene with jamie earlier that uh, patrick was working i couldn't I, we, I didn't have time to do with him but and it's in the rain when his friend leaves and he's standing yes. in the doorway and it's so it's his facial expressions are so reminiscent of batty even though it's certainly a different a totally different character but it's like I, I was telling the guys um, earlier that watching that film and watching uh, Rutgers' performance, this is, uh, yeah, seven years after Blade Runner, it made me feel like I was like, wow, this is like watching a statue come to life because I'm so used to watching these specific scenes in Blade Runner where I'm used right. to seeing Howard's performance in that way. And, and of course, he's not going to vary from what I'm used to it within the version of the film that I'm watching. And to watch this was to recognize something familiar and complex, but in a totally different setting. And and isn't it funny also, just to finish my point, sorry, I know I'm saying a lot of things, but um, 
And isn't it funny also his aversion to the military where he would run off and like go read Nietzsche under a tree for, for all day while he was, you know what I mean? And yet he played a soldier so many times. And so he had the training and had the mentality and had the aspect kind of like you did, Paul, but yet was had a personal aversion toward it. Yet a lot of his roles were like that. And it adds so much to the complexity of his character, uh, both in Blade Runner and I think in, in his other films. And here's another incongruity in that when he was uh, with a small troop of traveling actors, uh, he founded he had a facility for sword fighting. And Rooker was really good at sword fighting. And he picked it up himself. He had a few lessons from people who were in the company and some of the towns he went to. But another one of the reasons why he was cast as Floris, this dashing you know, uh, aristocrat from the 16th century, who, of course, were all skilled in the finer arts of warfare, as they called them, uh, was the fact that he was so damn good with the sword. And uh, so, you know, and then look at some of the parts he played. Look at the part he played in Flesh and Blood, that mercenary asshole that he plays in Flesh and Blood, which only because he looks like Rutger Hauer, he gets away with so much. But I mean, there's a character who's completely reprehensible. And yet you were talking about the legend of the Holy Drinker and Olmi's just a classic, wonderful motion picture. I cannot recommend that highly enough. People really should seek that out. It's in English, by the way. It's an English uh, language film but done by an Italian director with the Dutch leading man. But he plays this pathetic, homeless alcoholic who is like what you would, and I, or, well, let's not say you and I, because I don't think you and I might think this way, but let's say there are people who would think of a person in that situation as being essentially human trash. And he brings out the simplicity and nobility and the mysticism of this guy. And it's a spiritual arc that's so subtle and so defined, and yet he plays the entire movie, for all intents and purposes, completely smashed. And there's difficult thing to do you know playing drunk is not as easy as having a few beers before a camera you know to be a convincing drunk so rooker definitely was a talented man and i think that variety of roles that he had early on in his career as a young person you know i think that was very essential i had to laugh when you were talking about him wanting to go to sea and then discovering that you know that uh, he was colorblind and he couldn't he couldn't do it because two of the reasons yes that definitely was a reason why he didn't continue his seagoing adventures uh, but two others were one, he said that the first time he shipped out, he was seasick for about two weeks straight. And he never forgot the agony, the sheer <laughs> agony of that. I've been and there. The other, uh, yeah, me too. And, and the other was, he said that uh, he, he quickly learned that there were really only three things you did when you were uh, a, a merchant marine guy. You were on board and you took orders to do horrible jobs that since you were the lone man on the totem pole, no one else had to do. Or you got drunk. Or you went on land and went to a bar and got drunk and got into a fight. And that was pretty much it. He goes, there's the merchant marine's life, you know. And I laughed because uh, that's very much the sailor's life, too, uh, in the military. Um, but, yeah, he, uh, Rooker, uh, Rooker was quite well aware of the, uh, the ironies and the, the, the comical, absurdist aspects of life, as well as its, uh, as well as its good size, too. And he also, you could catch him out. He would giggle like a naughty boy sometimes, too. You know, yeah, I saw him at, uh, what was it, uh, at a, at a uh, anniversary celebration of, you brought up Lady Hawk, uh, at the uh, Cinerama Theater in Hollywood a few years back where Richard Donner, 
uh, the director of Lady Hawk and Ricker were the guests after the anniversary screening uh, on the wide screen of that film. And uh, they had some wonderful, wonderful anecdotes. But but Richard, uh, Dick Donner's uh, uh, response to Rutger was essentially one like, you naughty kid, boy, I had to sit on you to make sure we all didn't get thrown out of Bavaria or something <laughs> like that. And, and Rutger would just giggle like, yeah, okay, uh, you know, moving on. <laughs> so he had a very, very funny side to him too. Yeah, he sounded like quite the character. Um, I wanted to bring this back around to Patrick, Jamie, and then back to you, Paul. But because we brought it up, we talked about um, sort of the subtlety of his acting um, in in several different roles. So excluding um, the final death scene of Roy Batty in, in Blade Runner, which, you know, is for most of us is our favorite moment. So excluding that scene, I wanted to ask you guys sort of um, whether it's in Blade Runner or in a different film, what is a moment that stands out to you in his sort of in the subtle skill that he had in acting? And I'll open that up very quickly by reading the last quote by by Rucker that I wanted to read. Um, and it's in a last chapter in his book where he tries to give a quick lesson on acting, sort of like an account of what he thinks his process was. And of course, he's contrasting theater as opposed to uh, screen acting. But he says in film acting, you want to underplay emotion. The camera's very close to you. And you need not worry about it not catching what you are doing. It will not miss you. In my films, I want to take this even further, and I do. I hate acting when I see it. I don't want to feel it, and I don't want to see it. I want to be carried away with the story. I don't want the actor's ego in front of me. I want to believe these are real people on the screen in front of me and not actors. So when I act, I play it down. In a sense, I want the audience to do some of the acting for me. I hope that they'll be able to feel what my character's going through, and I can't get there by hitting them over the head with it. If the actor feels it's too much, sorry, if the actor feels it too much, the audience won't feel it enough. That's my take on it. Um, so again, I wanted to pass it to Patrick and kind of comment on that, and, and you know, maybe a scene that is important to you in that sense. Sure. Yeah, I, I think um, it's, it's funny when I when I think of, of Rucker's work, I don't think um, necessarily subtle. Although he's not he's not like an under actor by any means or an over actor by any means, but I, I don't I don't think of him necessarily as like a button down subtle actor. That said, though, I think um, an interesting little case study in this um, would be two of the final things that he ever did. Uh, one was he was uh, a voice in the novelization of Alien Out of the Shadows, which is great if anybody hasn't heard that and the Audible um, drama production of that. And uh, the other one is Observer, which is a, a, a PlayStation 4 game that came out in 2017. It's a survival horror game set in post-apocalyptic uh, Poland where he plays it. It's very Blade Runner influenced. If anybody is listening has not played it yet, do. Um, and it's interesting. In both of those cases, because he's divorced from his like visage, you can't see him at all. It's just his voice kind of floating around. Um, I'm struck by how accurate what you're saying is. He's really underplaying it. To the point where he's actually gotten criticisms um, in both of those cases because he's so kind of reserved. But I love it, and I love it because the the thing with acting is that you can be you can be evincing something but feeling something different, and the combination of those two things can create a third thing that you know you wouldn't have intended to happen. Totally. So the reason why why we love Ryan Gosling so much in First Man and also in Twenty Forty Nine. I think it's because although he is kind of a classic quote unquote under actor a lot of the time, it's there is very clear that there's a lot of interactivity going on. So what kind of boils through is almost comes across like it's being repressed 
almost like it's too much to handle, so you kind of have to hold it back. What's interesting with Rucker's voice performances in those two final projects, which, again, I know are kind of random when we're looking at his filmography, but I think it's an interesting instance, is that uh, there is n- it's completely uh, underplayed and yet very active, and because of that, it's sort of an intoxicatingly poetic um, view into him, I think, as an actor that I, I really recommend if people haven't picked up, um, pick up those, those two things. Awesome. Jamie? Well, I would characterize Rudger Hauer as a natural performer. Um, and I think about when we are going through our emotional struggles as humans, oftentimes we do that alone. Um, but we're feeling all of those things. But I'm sure if someone would look at us, even there's times where maybe between the three of us as friends and we're separated by certainly Patrick's the farthest away, but we can know, you know, when something's wrong, we can just feel it. And I feel like with Howard's performance, you see his face, but you can feel it. You can just feel what he's sort of going through. Um, I'll pivot to Lady Hawk. And uh, there's a symmetry between the characters of, Etienne Navarre in Lady Hawk and Roy Batty in Blade Runner, where you have these characters who are essentially looking for a better life. Whereas Etienne Navarre wants to kind of lift the curse off of him and his lover. And Roy Batty, as you everyone knows, wants to sort of lift the curse of a four-year lifespan. And what that is pushing him to do, um, the things that uh, Navarre's character in Lady Hawk has sort of done to preserve his bond with this hawk who was also his lover um, and where that's pushed him. Um, And I I think about his acting and there's one specific moment in Lady Hawk where there's a trench that had been dug the night before and Isabeau played by Michelle Pfeiffer is in this trench with the, the wolf, the black wolf and the sun is just coming up and you see her hands rubbing across the fur of the wolf and the sun hits her finger, her like the joints of her fingers and they glow because she's about to change and the change happens. And then there's this moment where Rudger Hauer or Etienne turns over and he looks at her and his eyes, probably the most powerful expression of someone's eyes I've ever seen. His eyes looking at this woman that he loves uh, is really, really something. And it reminded me of, and reminds me of, Batty, just in the sense where uh, Rutger Hauer is all up here. He's all up here, just like Ryan Gosling, essentially. But I would say he does a better job than Ryan Gosling in terms of Ryan Gosling has been, uh, he's been, I would say, accused of sort of being a little bit deadpan or a little bit blank. I disagree with that. But I would say Rutger Hauer, you can just like, even I watched the clip of uh, the legend of the, what is it called again? Holy Drinker. The Legend of the Holy Drinker, that scene where he's in the, the like the vestibule and it's raining mm-hmm. and he's he's just sort of putting himself together and he's not saying anything, but it's like you're about to cry because you feel what he's feeling and no so one so much there. Yeah. There's no one who's been able to do that like he has been able to. So he, he's he's really profound and uh I, I don't think there will be anyone else like him. 
Yeah. Well, uh, uh, since uh, you bring up 2049 and Ryan Gosling, I think anyone who accuses Ryan Gosling of being a chronic minimalist has certainly not seen The Good Guys, where he is the one of the funniest slapstick out there, over-the-top performances he's ever given. I mean, Gosling uh, is unfortunately like so many people in front of and behind the cameras in commercial cinema – uh, pigeonhole. They get stereotyped. And, you know, he seems to be, especially after the success of Drive, where he played kind of the brooding, quiet, you know, uh, self-contained Steve McQueen type hero. Um, you know, he's he's trading off of that. But but Ryan Gosling, you know, it's not what he does all the time. Ryan can do anything. Ryan's been acting since he was nine years old. America didn't catch on to him until he was in the Disney, you know, the, the Mouseketeers Club. And by then he was already an adolescent and he was a pro. Uh, Ryan can do comedy, drama, whatever. And he does he, if he adjusts to the role. So that's saying that. As far as Rutger goes, I think part of the um, reason I find both he and Paul Verhoeven interesting as uh, people from the Netherlands is because uh, the Dutch, then as of now, and I've been someone who've been who's been going to Amsterdam and The Hague and. Oh, Rotterdam and places like that and taking trains through northern Germany and all around the Netherlands because I find it a fascinating country for about 20, 25 years now. Um, they are a curious mixture. I mentioned this once before. Curious from my point of view as an American uh, in that it, it, they, as a, as a culture, tend to discourage any kind of public flamboyance. They sort of treasure a sort of low-profile public persona. That's the way they like to be. They don't like to stick out. And so you've got Paul Verhoeven, who just is about as flamboyant as can be, at least when he wants to be. Paul is a very canny individual. He knows and has crafted that persona himself, and he knows exactly what effect he is getting when he does that. So he's different in that sense. And Rooker, in a sense, has become known for these somewhat flamboyant roles, too. But if I go back to the beginnings of his career and all the way to some of the things he did later in his career, let's go back to Nighthawks when he plays that terrorist, Wolfgar. Wolfgar is a chameleon. Wolfgar is about 15 different people in that film. What you get basically from that is this icily controlled professional killer who has something goading him that is more unstoppable than a four-year lifespan and that's this driving ideology he's ideologically driven that character he is there to blow up what he considers to be an absolutely corrupt system now who knows as Rutger often said what Rutger was uh, what Wolfgar was like you know when he went home and he had a beer with his pals you know but when he was working which you see that character of Rooker playing throughout Nighthawks, this completely ruthless, very capable, very mechanically, very ruthless kind of killer. There's, there are moments in that when he is just being so refined. You can think of him as almost like the ultimate Dutch gentleman or the ultimate Dutch sophisticate where everything is under control. And then there are moments like when he's on the tramway between Roosevelt Island in uh, near 60th Street. And, uh, I'm sorry, 60th in uh, Midtown, not Midtown, uh, over the Roosevelt River in New York. And he's on the uh, uh, tramway where he's starting to lose it. And that's the, really the only time 
other than one other sequence in the nightclub where you actually see him lose control. So there's a minimalist performance from Utger right there. The Legend of the Holy Drinker, which you bring up. Again, if you look at superficially what Rooker is doing that, it's almost like you could think of it as a one-note performance, this pathetic, trampish drunk. But you see someone who actually, as you learn later in the film, has had something very traumatic happen to him in his life, which has driven him from a fairly stable middle-class life to where he is now. And he is doing everything in his power to kill himself, to forget that. And that suddenly puts a whole dimension on what you've seen previously. And if you see that film a second time, you go, oh, look what he's done. Look at these little grace notes. Look yeah. at these moments, you know. And uh, conscience. Conscience drives that character. He doesn't have to return that money that keeps being given to him by that mysterious stranger. He keeps trying. And what does he end up doing most of the time? He ends up giving it away or drinking it away or giving it to drink, you know. So – it's not as if he uh, was only involved in projects that allowed him to show that mm, colorful, eccentric Rutger Hauer. And, and, and also, if I may be so bold, I think it does a disservice to people. Um, and it, it tends like, as someone who knew Philip K. Dick for about a 10-year period, and got to know him very well, frankly, towards the last few years of his life, um, I was always a bit miffed by this deification process that happens. When you know a flesh and blood person, and then, all, you know, whatever station they're in, and then for whatever reason, destiny, fate, talent, just blind chance, they suddenly become a celebrity, or even further an icon, or even more than that, a quasi-religious mystical figure. People tend to lose sight of the fact that they were human. And one of the things that Ritker went through that mm -hmm. I saw happen to him, because I was there sporadically during the 80s and we kept in touch in the 90s and the noughties and up to now, was his Hollywood period. And he went through a period where even though his first Hollywood film, Nighthawks, was an utter nightmare because of the machinations of Sylvester Stallone, which is in all those moments, and a lot of things that he could not write about because <laughs> Stallone has, again, more powerful attorneys than Rutger did. Um, he, Rutger told me, he said, I didn't know if I ever wanted to work in Hollywood again after that experience. That was my first real American film, and it was a nightmare. It was horrible. And then I did Blade Runner, and I worked on this beautiful motion picture with a sensitive, crazy script with this wonderful director. And, the, and I thought, well, and then, of course, he went on and he did things like, you know, Lady Hawk. And now, concurrently, he has this long-term relationship with Paul Verhoeven, who has, in, in, in effect, made him possible to have this Hollywood career. And then Paul and Rooker reunite in 1984-85 for Flesh and Blood which was bankrolled essentially by Mike Metaboy from Orion Pictures, an American company, and some German and Spanish companies. And it was a truly international co-production that was shot on a miserable location in northern Spain at the worst time of the year that they had to reschedule. So they were out there in the rain, the snow. They couldn't get their locations. They had an international cast. Uh, Paul's English was not quite as good as it is now, oh, well, in any way, shape, or form as good as it is now. Rutgers was, and yet Rooker, I think, at that point was going through the head-swelling process that often happens to actors when they hit. And for about, we used to have this thing when I worked at Universal called the two-year asshole rule. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll give you a little behind the scenes thing that I haven't really spoken about too often. I used to have a mentor who was Jerry Lewis's publicist. And Jerry Lewis was not the easiest person to work for, as I'm sure anybody who even knows who Jerry Lewis is at this point uh, will understand. Anyway, he told me, I said, how in God's name did you survive working with someone as egomaniacal and as horrifying at times as Jerry Lewis could be? And he said, well, he says, I worked a lot with those people. He says, what happens is you'll get a perfectly nice performer, a guy who's really trying or a woman who's really struggled. Bam, they hit it. Overnight, they've got all the money, they've got their inner circle, they've got walled off from reality, they can get whatever they want and do whatever they want. That's going to go to anybody, said, unless you're a saint. But we have this rule. And I said, we? And he goes, yeah, old timers like me. We give them two years to work their way through that. Okay, you go off and have your drugs, you go off and have your scandals, you go off and treat everybody like shit. But if you haven't come back to earth after two years, we're just going to cut you loose emotionally because you're never coming back. Strangely enough, I think Rutgers period lasted for about four years. And then he came back to earth because I think what happened on Flesh and Blood, which was famously the film that after he and Paul Verhoeven had worked together so closely. And Paul Verhoeven also always said that Paul is slightly older than Rutger, but he, Paul always said uh, Rutger was my alter ego. He had my best friend. He's like my brother. But we hated each other at the same time, just like family. He said, but I think what happened on that was Rutger came back a Hollywood star. And he was working on a film where he thought, ah, oh, I can throw my power around a little bit. And so when the cast on the American cast in particular, and I won't name names, uh, but if you go back and you look who is in Flesh and Blood, you'll see who the American and the British performers were. They were all at that period of time, legendary carousers. Many of them would stay up all night drinking and all day drinking and be in fact drunk in front of the camera. Paul Verhoeven doesn't drink. Paul Verhoeven doesn't smoke, never has. Paul Verhoeven swims a mile an hour every single day and is in the best shape of an 81-year-old I know. And Paul had a runaway production where the actors, particularly the American and British ones, weren't really giving him any respect. And they were just bogging things down and Rooker was egging them on. And that's what caused the rift. And so I think it is clarifying and i don't say this out of any sense of personal animosity or try to dig up anything but i think that when we tend to eulogize that's wonderful and we should remember the good things about people just as we try to when we go to bed at night try to rewind the day and try to mostly think about the pleasant things that happen to us but we're all human and as we all know to human to be human is to be flawed and rutger definitely had his flaws as well yeah, I hope I just didn't deflate the podcast. No, no, I actually no. that was a really sweet note you ended on. I, I like that. Um, you know, you pivot towards realism because it, it's true. We can idolize people. Um, I'm going to give everyone an opportunity to have final thoughts as well. But uh, just real quick, first of all, because there are several Starfish Foundations, I want to correct the record. And Rucker Howard's uh, Starfish Association can be found at RutgerHoward.org. Um, and you can find everything you need there if you want to donate. Again, that's all for HIV-AIDS um, research and help in poorer countries like in Turks and Caicos where he was kind of first uh, got the passion to start that project. Um, again, all proceeds of his book, um, all those moments, go 100% goes towards that foundation. Um, 
I wanted to ask you real quick, Paul, and we can go off record if you don't want this public, that's fine. But um, just because uh, we've mentioned Verhoeven so much, I was wondering, did you want to talk about any future projects or anything like that? Well, um, I don't know informally, if you can. I informally, you. informally, let me say that at the moment I am working on another book, uh, which uh, all things being equal should be out by this time next year, which certainly does involve Paul Verhoeven. Okay. Dot, dot, dot. Great. We're all looking forward to that. Um, I'm looking forward to being done. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> um, can relate to that. I'll tell you, there's nothing like, you know, we're all, anyone who is a writer or a performer or whatever, an artist, uh, and I, oh, God, did I use that word? I never consider myself an artist. <laughs> Maybe a talented craftsperson at best. Um, but, uh, it can, you know, you get to a certain point where you're just banging your head against the keyboard going, please let the blood jam the keys. Please let the nightmare <laughs> stop. And then, of course, six months after it's done, you go, oh, isn't this wonderful? Did I do that? <laughs> so, I'm sort of in that phase right now. But, yes, I am I am working on that. And uh, I am going to be uh, popping up, I think, at a number of uh, later Blade Runner-associated 2019 events this year, including something that you guys are doing. So you should uh, go ahead and, you know, self-promote by all, by all means. Yeah. Uh, Patrick or Jamie, you guys want to take it? You're so good at this part. <laughs> I'll do it for I you know, Jamie, you've been so good at doing this in every episode lately. I'm gonna jump in and I'm going right. to say that Let's if you go it. to bladerunnerpodcast.com uh forward slash event, or you can just go to bladerunnerpodcast.com, you can buy tickets, which are still for a few more days as of the publishing date of this episode, on sale at a slightly discounted rate to our event, which is happening on Wednesday, November 13th, in downtown Los Angeles at the historic former home of the Pacific Stock Exchange. It's called um, Los Angeles, November 2019, an event. And uh, it will feature Paul himself, along with Joanna Cassidy and Charles de la Zarica. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be there as well to kind of, you know, uh, glam down the event a little bit. And uh, <laughs> we would love to see as many of you there as possible. This is a truly once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's, it's in the, it's steps away from a number of notable filming locations, as anybody who has read Paul's book, which you should, would know. Um, and we will be visiting those and staying up all night, having fun together, and celebrating the unique position that we're in, which is that we can go to Los Angeles in November of 2019, just as Rutger and everybody else involved with Blade Runner did in their own parallel universe, and celebrate a global fandom at a time that will never come again. So go to bladerunnerpodcast.com and buy tickets, and we will see you there. And uh, just, uh, and and not to be cheeky, but uh, Rutger uh, and I actually, I said we had met about a year ago, but we had been talking uh, not long before he passed uh, about his uh, possible participation in another November 2019 Blade Runner event that is taking place in Teesside, England uh, in November. And uh, it's about a week before your event. I think it starts on November 7th through the 10th. Yeah. And it's called the well. Cyberpunk. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Joanna will be there. And Rutger was saying he was going to attend. He was looking forward to it. And so it's, uh, it's rather, uh, rather sad that he won't be there. But 
what's going to be interesting about this one, you people might be saying, well, why would you go to, you know, northeastern England for a film that takes place in November 2019? Well, maybe it's because this is the uh, childhood and uh, adolescent and uh, beyond home of uh, Ridley Scott before he became Sir Ridley Scott. So uh, that opening shot that you see in Blade Runner was in part inspired by the scenery that you will see around mm. Teesside, which will give you an idea how scenic an area this is. <laughs> sure. Jamie, final thoughts? Um, well, there's so much. Uh, I, I, you know, like you, like Paul said in the beginning, there's sort of a, a continual outpouring of admiration and love for who Rudger Hauer was, but more specifically how his character of Roy Batty, uh, lingers with us and continues to linger with us um and probably always will um there's not a character like him so i am just really grateful and that's that's pretty much it for now i know we're gonna do a part two of this we're gonna talk a little bit more and go a little bit more in depth i'm gonna hand it off to patrick for the final word and that'll be that I just want to say, you know, in the days after Rutgers death, we were, as as Paul beautifully laid out earlier on, um, you know, fandom worldwide was in a state of shock a little bit. And uh, and there was just so much um, chatter online about, you know, how uh, how much he had meant to us and how we weren't really prepared to say goodbye yet. And just a, a personal note, I was planning on meeting him in about a week from the recording date of this for the first time at an event in Boston that he was supposed to go to. And that's yes. not going to happen, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was something that it's it, it, it hit us all really, really hard. And I just want to say it has been a, uh, a real uh, a real privilege, I think, for us all to go through this together as a global family, you know, that like it's something that I think has affected us all in a, in a deep way, you know, and, and some people like Paul, of course, having had this very long relationship with him, but even people like me, I, I never got a chance to meet him. And, you know, I, I feel like he was a, a real part of my life since I was a child, you know, mm-hmm. and since he first informed my late night conversations, staying up with my cousin talking about Blade Runner and um, it was a real loss and we're lucky to have each other to go through it with. I just wanted to close with that. All right. Well, with that, I think we are going to close this part of the episode and thank Paul for his time. And we will be talking to you guys soon. Um, thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Yeah, oh. thank you so much. Really oh, appreciate yeah. it. That night, I scratched all the dialogue and I kept two lines that seemed to make sense because they were related to a few things in the script, and then I was just looking for one line that would kind of, in a tiny nutshell, sort of, you would feel what Roy feels, which of course is (laughs) impossible, right? I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. The one phrase, that one line, it didn't come from me. It came from the poet in me, and there was a poet in Roy, which doesn't make sense, but it, there was, right, in the programs. By coming up with that one line uh, to conclude Roy's quest, I was also anchoring uh, myself. Uh, as an actor in in my own you know in my own insecure way 
and for an audience to carry that, uh, you know, for 30 years uh, with such love, I mean, it cannot really get any better, you know, it cannot get better, never, it can't get better. This is one moment and this is 30 years later and it's still the same moment, it's ridiculous. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>